There are two groups of people who probably ought to stop listening now. The first is, I would guess quite a lot of you guys have come here thinking you're going to get some help on how to, um, on how to find new 10 and 20 baggers, or how to ride the, the cycle in the Livian market more effectively. And you reckon you're going to make uh, your fortune trading an hour a day from your screen at home. If you come here to think that, then I've only two words to say to you, which are dream on. My talk today is aimed at people who have some kind of realistic aspirations and expectations about uh, what they can do with investment. And I'm aiming what I have to say today to two groups of people. One, whom I guess are probably the majority of you, were people who are going to go on to good professional jobs somewhere over your life. You're going to accumulate a certain amount of spare cash, and you're going to want to know what to do with it. And you want to be able to make a realistic target rate of return, perhaps 7 or 10%, but you don't have any fantasies. You can earn more than that. The other group of people are, in this audience, I suspect, are people who are probably going to take jobs in the financial services industry. And I want to give you a little bit of background things you should know, and I want to say, really, it's not anything like as difficult as people mostly make it sound. The first group of people, then, who ought to forget it are the, the people who want to make themselves rich by day trading. I'm not going to help you at all. Second group of people who ought to stop listening are, I fear, some of the people who are the sponsors of this particular conference. Because I'm going to say some things that people in the financial services industry won't much like. So I apologize for coming here to uh, talk at a conference sponsored by some very excellent and admirable firms. And being, I'm not going to be rude to them, it's not in my style to be rude. But I'm not going to be nice either, it's not in my style to be nice. <laughs> the way I frame this talk is to spend a fairly short time telling you about ten things I think you need to know. And the first is... The first question would be how the mouse works. Ah, it works that way. Okay, um, first thing you need to know is the least risky way to increase the returns on your investment is to pay less to people in the financial services industry. A typical retail investor will be very lucky if he or she gets away with paying less than 3 or 4% a year total in charges to people who work in the financial services industry. And if you're realistic about what returns you're going to earn, that makes a hell of a difference to what you may end up with. Let me illustrate just how big a difference it makes to what you will end up with. And this is, I think, one of the most extraordinary calculations I've ever done. And it received quite a lot of attention. I did it a couple of years ago. And I looked at, the, it was at the moment when Warren Buffett, who most of you will know is probably from a successful investor in history. It accumulated a fortune of $62 billion. And I asked myself, suppose Warren had um, run himself as a hedge fund. 
Suppose he'd run himself as a hedge fund, not for other people, but just for himself. So he paid himself a standard 2 and 20 management charge on the funds he'd been investing for himself through his lifetime. So we'd be dividing Warren Buffett's fortune into two components. The component that would be Mr. Buffett himself and the component that would be Mr. Buffett investment management. And I asked how much of the 62 billion would have ended up in the hands of Mr. Buffett and how much would have ended up in the hands of Mr. Buffett investment management. And the answer to that question is uh, 5 billion of the 62 billion belongs to Mr. Buffett and 57 billion would have been accumulated by, uh, uh, by Warren Buffett Investment Management. That's uh, actually the magic of compound interest, and that shows you how charges accumulate over a 40-year investing lifetime career. And that tells you why it makes such a difference to reduce the charges you pay. Now, you might think that the reason so much of it goes to the investment management side of the thing is that Warren Buffett investment management was absolutely great. And it was. It was the best investment management firm you could have found over that 40-year period. But the trouble is that the same sum basically goes through even if the returns are much worse than uh, they were on the Buffett portfolio. Uh, it's still true that over a 40-year period, the people who are taking fees out of your investment activities are a lot more likely to end up rich than you are. And even if you both end up rich, they will end up richer than you are. Where are the customers' yachts is one of the famous questions about the investment industry. It comes, as you may know, from the story of someone going to Rhode Island and being shown uh, the yachts of the plutocrats of the financial services industry. Where are the customers' yachts? It's a question you want also to always to be asking yourself. Second thing I want to tell you is there are only basically two investment strategies. One is momentum-driven trading and the other is volume investing. Basically, if you look at the simple economics of any kind of investment activity, the basic underlying principles of asset pricing is there are two ways of valuing an asset. An asset is worth the net present value of expected earnings you're going to get out of it, or an asset is worth what someone else is willing to pay for it. And that's something that takes you into these two simple investment strategies. You can either guess what someone else is going to be willing to pay for it in the future, or you can guess at what it's worth. And the truth is, unless you're going to be a full-time market professional, you can forget about an investment strategy of guessing what other people are going to want to pay for it. Other people are more in touch with that kind of momentum activity uh, in the market than you are. Most of them are not very good at being in touch with that kind of investment activity, although the momentum-driven activity, although there are one or two are, but if you think you sitting at home with your computer are going to be that person, then that's an illusion which I want to dispel you from you straight away. But if you've understood this very simple idea of, uh, of asset pricing, 
uh, or asset valuation, you can deduce one very basic and important thing from it, which is which of these uh, stories about asset valuation is right? Is an asset worth the net present value of an expected earnings stream, or is an asset far worth what someone else is willing to pay for it? The answer is if you don't mind being a patient investor, what it's worth to you is the higher of these particular two. <coughs> because you have the option of waiting and deriving the net present value of its expected earnings stream, or of selling it for what someone else is willing to pay for it. So if you're a patient investor, what an asset is worth to you is actually the higher of the two. And that gives you a big advantage over market professionals, actually, because market professionals are mostly forced to mark their portfolios to market, and that means they have to focus on what someone else is willing to pay for it. That has a big impact on the totality of market behavior, but that's something uh, which uh, uh, I don't have time to say a great deal about today. The third thing you need to know is many of you in this room will be doing economics or will have been doing courses with uh, substantial elements of economics in it. And if you do that, you will learn and you certainly need to know the basic elements of financial economics. You need to know about the theory of risk and basically, more or less, the only theory of risk you're likely to be taught as far as financial markets is concerned is what we call theory of subjective expected utility based on the idea that people make decisions on the basis of subjective probabilities and expected utility. You will be taught that theory and you need to know that theory. You will also be taught efficient market theory uh, that every, every, everything that can be known about asset prices is already in, uh, about asset values is in the price. And you'll certainly be taught the capital asset pricing model, which is basically a story about a kind of market equilibrium, which is based on subjective expected utility and efficient market theory. You're going to be taught all that, and you need to know all that. So those of you who are not learning that uh, uh, in your economics courses elsewhere, but are interested in investment, are going to find it out. But, and this is a really subtle and important lesson to learn, you're going to be told by the people who teach it you, almost certainly, that this is, this is it, as it were, that this is the theory of financial markets, and they will certainly tell you correctly uh, that the, the whole superstructure of modern financial economics is based on these ideas. What I want to say to you, is that it's a mistake for you either to believe these theories are true or to believe these theories are false. Because the reality is these theories are very largely true, but most of what is interesting and important in investment comes in the aspects in which they're not true. So the areas in which they're true are important and the areas in which they're not true are important. And therefore, that's why you need to know about these theories and whilst this at the same time as you need to know about these theories, you need not to believe it. Indeed, Buffett, who comes up with great aphorisms from time to time, or Carol Loomis, who writes Buffett's statements, for he does, came up with the theory that observing that markets were mostly efficient, they, 
by which she was referring to market professionals and finance academics. He said people on Wall Street and in universities concluded that markets were always efficient. The difference between these two propositions, that markets are mostly efficient and that markets are always efficient, is night and day, said Buffett. And in the case of, uh, of Buffett, the difference between the two amounts to something like $62 billion. So he's probably right to say that, that um, the difference is night and day. The third, fourth thing you need to know is that you ought to mind your portfolio. Risk is a property of the, your portfolio as a whole, and risk is not the aggregate of the risks of individual portfolios. There is no such thing as the risk of an individual investment. The risk that is relevant to you is the risk of all your investments taken together. And one thing you really need to learn from financial economics is to think about that about risk in that kind of way. I want to tell you about the very first share I ever bought when I was about the stage of my career uh, that you were all at. And it was a very strange share. It was a, a, a shipyard, a little shipyard in Scotland called Rob Caledon. And the shipyard was bust. Why did I buy, as my first investment, a share in a bust shipyard? Well, it was a very peculiar share. Because in 1976, which is when that share was on the market and when I bought it, there was a bill to nationalise the shipbuilding industry going through the British Parliament. And there was a very complicated compensation formula that meant that if the bill went through Parliament, Rob Caledon would be nationalised and the shareholders would get a pound a share. If the shipbuilding nationalisation bill failed, uh, then the shares would be worthless and you wouldn't get anything. That was, that was the position, that was the deal. An odd thing that I learned immediately at that time was that I had to be quite persistent in order actually to buy these shares. I rang up a couple of stockbrokers, this was putting my toe into the investment water, and they told me that shipbuilding nationalisation was a stupid idea, which was true, but didn't seem to be relevant. They told me that the Labour government was incompetent and useless, which was also true, but didn't seem to be relevant. Uh, they told me that I could have bought the shares, which were then selling in the market at about 40p, a few months earlier for less than 20p, which was also true but didn't seem to me relevant. And one of the things I was learning from that process was that actually people don't think about risks very often in terms of probabilities. They think in terms of, uh, of stories and narratives, and that continues to be true in financial markets, which is one of the reasons why you ought to learn about uh, these theories without taking them over seriously. But the other thing, course I realized was that uh, and I thought two things about this investment. One was that I thought the probability that the shipbuilding bill would go through Parliament was a lot more than 0.4 and if that was the case these shares selling at 40p were quite a good investment. I also thought that actually this um, was an investment which was negatively correlated with the rest of my portfolio. 
Now, I wasn't there yet then old enough or rich enough to have my own investment portfolio of, of, of uh, any significance. But I was arrogant uh, enough to believe that I would pay, uh, earn quite a lot in the course of my lifetime, and that I, I would pay quite a lot of tax in the course of my lifetime. And if I'd had to pay tax in the course of my lifetime on the basis of the rates that were prevailing in 1976, that would have been quite a lot of tax. If uh, the Shipbuilding Nationalisation Bill hadn't gone through, the reason would have been that the Labour government would have fallen. If that would have been the case, then Margaret Thatcher would have become Prime Minister, and these tax rates would be reduced quite a lot. Uh, in which case I would make more money, so that actually buying Rob Caledon was a hedge against the rest of my portfolio. I was doing two things. I was thinking probabilities, and I was looking at my portfolio as a whole, and, um, uh, that, uh, uh, and that was the basis for my buying uh, my investment, that particular investment. We'll all be pleased to hear that the Shipbuilding Nationalisation Bill did, in fact, go through Parliament. The Labour government did eventually collapse, but that was three years later. I got my pound a share, and that launched me on my investment career. But I was tempted to think one thing at the end of that, which you shouldn't think, that I was tempted to think I was smart, and actually I was just lucky. We don't know, even in retrospect, whether my judgment that the probability that that bill would go through Parliament was or wasn't a lot more than 0.4. The next thing you need to know is that for professional fund managers, risk is relative underperformance. People who are market professionals are endlessly benchmarked by reference to market indices of one kind or another. But you, as an individual investor, are not benchmarked by your relative performance. For you, risk means something quite different. The risk that you face in your investing career is not having enough money to achieve your realistic objectives in the course of your lifetime. You ought to set yourself a set of objectives and risk the risk that concerns you is the possibility that you won't actually get it. Risk has no objective meaning. There is, to repeat something I said earlier, no such thing as a risky investment. There is only a risky portfolio, and it's your risky portfolio in relation to your, uh, your particular objectives. And that means a lot of people think that certainty is the opposite of risk, and it really isn't. There are, and I'll emphasize this point again a bit later, there are no certainties anywhere in the world, and you shouldn't believe anyone who tells you there are. But anyway, certainty isn't the opposite of risk. This isn't the way either people do think about risk, or you should think about risk. For professional fund managers, risk is relative underperformance. They get fired when they underperform. Their management firms lose money when they underperform. That's the risk that obsesses them. That's the risk that their compliance markets department measure. And it isn't risk which ought to be relevant to their customers. And it isn't a risk which ought to be relevant to you. So what we're doing in the course of this 
is picking up a number of reasons why the way you should think about investment should be different from the ways in which professionals think about investment. And by thinking differently, there are actually things in that that are an advantage to you. Another of them is that market volatility is your friend, not your enemy. Now, market volatility creates opportunities to make profits out of market time. <laughs> the surest way to become rich is to buy at the bottom of the market and sell at the top. And if you do that very often, you will become very rich. Unfortunately, not very many people, including me, actually know how to do that. And not very many people who are employed as professionals in markets know how to do it either. Getting market timing right in this sense is very hard. And there's almost no evidence that there are people out there who are good at doing it. But price fluctuations create opportunities. Remember what we said earlier, that an asset is worth, uh, is worth them higher of the fundamental value of the asset in terms of the underlying earnings stream it generates and the, the price at which it's selling in the market. Market volatility means you can sell assets when people are willing to pay more than they're worth and you can buy assets when people are willing to sell them for less than they're worth. Well, you can't do market timing, but price fluctuations create opportunities. And one of the reasons, those of you who've done economics or financial economics will know that financial economists worry about what they call the equity premium paradox. Why is it that over a very fairly extended period, the excess return on equities over safe assets turns out to be so high. And the main reason, in my view, is that people actually need to be paid a lot for worrying about market volatility. If you have an investment portfolio of any size, you will almost certainly look at its value every time you get a chance to, to press a button on your computer or you see items in the papers. You don't get any, any useful information from that. Market fluctuations on a day-to-day basis are essentially generated by noise. It's impossible not to keep looking at the value of your portfolio, but at best, it's pretty much a waste of time. But market volatility is your friend, not your enemy. Volatility is not the same as risk. And people who tell you it is are wrong. And pound cost averaging, which is simply to drip money steadily into the market, is a, a simple mechanical strategy which actually gives you index beating returns if you follow it systematically. So this is one, almost the only, as it were, mechanical market system that can actually be shown to work. Now, one of the things about my investment in Rob Caledon which I didn't learn until quite a lot, long time later, was that Rob Caledon was actually a very peculiar kind of investment. The shares I was buying in Rob Caledon were either worth nothing or they were, were worth a pound. And within a year or so, you were going to find out which it was that they were actually worth. That's a very stylized investment situation, and it doesn't happen very often. It's a situation where you, you know with certainty or near certainty what the space of possible outcomes 
of the transaction is, and you can, in a sensible way, start thinking about the probabilities you attach to these outcomes. An awful lot of the situations we face in the world don't have these characteristics. I don't often quote Donald Rumsfeld, but some many of you will know that one of Rumsfeld's most famous incoherent utterances was one where he talked about known knowns, known unknowns, and unknown unknowns. And we ought to actually to take that description quite seriously. Known unknowns are where something like tossing a coin, or betting on a roulette wheel, or investing in Rob Caledon as an investment, where you know what might the range of things that might happen, but you don't know which one of the things might happen is actually going to happen. Most real questions in the economic, business, and finance world are actually open-ended. You can't even define the space of possible outcomes. This is the kind of thing that Nassim Taleb has made famous in talking about black swans. They're things that you didn't describe effectively in advance. If you could anticipate the invention of the wheel, you would already have invented the wheel. The largest step taken to inventing the personal computer was thinking that there could be such a thing as a personal computer, and so on. Right? We, the, the world is actually full of uncertainties, and so is the investment world. And a lot of the mistake people make in modeling the investment world is to believe that everything can be defined in terms of spaces over which we can define probabilities. It actually can't be. Uh, so modern financial economics is based on expected utility, Bayesian statistics, subjective probabilities, sometimes with a dose of rational expectations and market equilibrium thrown in. That's what you're all taught in, in economics courses about the principles of financial economics. Understand that that's only one way of thinking about risk and uncertainty, but it's only one way of thinking about risk and uncertainty. And it may not, in a lot of circumstances, be the best ways of thinking about risk and uncertainty. Uh, one of the things I learned when I rang these brokers about Rob Caledon was actually that they thought about risk and uncertainty in very different ways. They thought about the world in terms of narratives and stories and how much confidence did you have in the stories you tell. And that's another way, a rather prevalent way of thinking about risk and uncertainty in the world. And it's very often the best way we have of dealing with genuinely uncertain situations. Next thing I want to tell you is that there are no such things as safe assets. I think it's worth remembering because certainly my lifetime has been a relatively stable period in human history. But if one goes back even to the 1920s and 1930s, we're talking about an environment in which people uh, who believe themselves to have secure portfolios based on a group of safe assets, discovered that political developments or economic developments meant that these portfolios turned out to be worth nothing at all. There are no such things, ultimately, as safe assets. The idea that cash is a safe asset 
is an illusion. It's vulnerable to both expropriation and inflation. There is no such thing anywhere in the investment world as a safe asset. And that leads you directly into recognizing that diversification is the best means of minimizing risk in a portfolio. There are two reasons, actually, why it's the, mean, the, the, the best means of minimizing risk in a portfolio. One of them follows from what I said earlier about the risk in a portfolio is a property of the portfolio as a whole and not of the individual investments in it. You cannot measure the risk associated with uh, a portfolio of investments by adding up in any simple way the risks associated with, uh, with the individual elements of it. But also, when you recognize there are no such things as safe assets anywhere in the world, you understand that the only thing that can give you a reasonable protection against adverse scenarios and, and adverse developments is diversification. When we talk about diversification, we also need to pick up one thing that large financial institutions discovered with a, a bit of a shock in 2007-2008, which is you don't measure uh, diversification in a portfolio effectively by measuring historic correlations. Because what they had done in the risk models which they had created to manage the risks which they had in their debt portfolios and indeed other portfolios over that period, what they had done was to compute series of historic correlations and saying this portfolio of rubbish which we have is not actually very risky because the, the different bits of rubbish are all uncorrelated with each other. What they learned in 2007, 2008 was in a crisis, all rubbish is rubbish. So that things that uh, they believed were uncorrelated with each other and had been historically uncorrelated with each other actually turned out to be strongly correlated with each other when the crunch came. You need to assess diversification by understanding the processes that give rise to the returns you get on different investments and not by mechanically looking at the historic correlations that come from. And the last of the ten things I want to say to you about investment is to be contrarian. And that means not only not trying to follow market fashions. I've told you you're not going to succeed as individual investors by being, by being momentum-driven traders. But you are going to succeed in individual investors by actually being contrarian. We've talked about the ways in which efficient markets mean that public information is in the price. The trouble is the way markets are nowadays, public information of an exciting kind actually tends to be more than in the price. So one simple guide to uh, investment is to look at the adverts in the the Saturday personal finance pages of uh, the broadsheet newspapers and see the kind of funds that are being advertised to retail investors. You can, some of you have probably been around long enough to remember what they were. They were technology funds in 1999. They were property funds in 2006. They're bond funds today. In every case, they're the funds that 
correspond to the enthusiasm of the moment. They're the funds who, uh, whose price has recently been ramped up. And they're the funds you ought as a contrarian investor not to be buying. And if, you, if you'd simply manage your portfolio in terms of not buying them in 2006 and back in 1999, your portfolio would have done a great deal better. In a sense, and it seems a, a terrible note on which to end, you ought to learn what market professionals are thinking and try and do the opposite, whatever it may be, at any particular time. I'm not going to comment on what that ought to lead you to think about bonds, but you might make some, some inferences of that on that particular basis. But let me end then with wishing you in investment and financial careers good luck to say I'm willing to take questions on uh, on whatever it is you uh, you actually want to ask me within a certain amount of reason. So, and I'll anticipate uh, the one question I'm asked most often, which is I want to try and sell you, and we're making an amazing offer to you on the, the book I wrote a couple of years on how to do investment for yourself. The question I'm asked most often, actually, is the question, how did you get a cover like that? And the answer to that is the, the, the person who did the cover design for me went into the, uh, the investment section of very large, the very large Waterstones in Piccadilly in London and came out of it and said, these look awful. The one thing I'm going to make sure is I don't give you anything like that. I wanted to write a book that is different. And that's why uh, I went for the cover that was different from anything that was on the shelves already. Thank you very much.